Hello and welcome to This Is Our Design, Sound On Sight's Hannibal podcast dedicated to Brian Fuller's series based on the characters created by Thomas Harris. I am Sean Coletti, contributing writer at Sound On Sight, and I am joined by my co-host Kate Kolzik, TV editor at Sound On Sight. Hello, Kate. Hey, Sean. This week we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 3, Hassan, uh, written by Jason Grote and Steve Lightfoot and directed by Peter Medoc. And joining us this week from TV.com is Noel Kirkpatrick. So hello and welcome to the podcast, Noel. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, going into this episode, I wanted to ask you a question first, Noel, about uh, an issue that you bring up in your most recent review, which is about the glorification of violence on this series. Sure. And uh, you talked a little bit about how the artistry has kind of made that a point with some of the fans and how the the dapper Hannibal Lecter is kind of the fan favorite. And that kind of makes people forget that he is still a serial killer <laughs> and is committing these acts of violence um, onto other people. So could you talk a little bit about that issue that you see and kind of where you stand on it? Sure. I think a lot of it just had to do with my experiences talking with a number of folks about the show. When we included the show in our top 100 everything at TV.com last year, there was a large discussion about how we shouldn't be glorifying and holding this show up as a quality piece of television because of the intense amount of gore and about Hannibal's cannibalism. And it was just an interesting thing that was running through my head as we were watching this episode and how we had the prosecutor basically making a case about concerns about media violence in the idea that Hannibal, sorry, not Hannibal, that Will was committing these crimes because he had been exposed to so much violence. And I just thought it was an interesting way of the show kind of addressing a potential criticism of it. One that I hadn't really seen, but I'm sure is out there from some people. I know some people don't particularly care for the show or it's too dark or it's kind of empty. And I just think that, that was something that was running through my mind when we were when I was writing about the episode. I know my reaction to the Hannibal character is that I'm absolutely attracted to him in some way, and that's a lot of Mass Mickelson's performance. Yeah. But I guess I'm never not aware that, that he is a horrible person and <laughs> that I, sh- I should be terrified of him at the, at the same time. Um, Kate, where do you kind of stand on this issue? That, that sounds about right. <laughs> and I, I think that it's actually, for me, it's very interesting that while I'm sure, especially given the horrific nature of the episode one and two of this season, the the eyeball and the, the opening, the horrible, horrible opening to the episode last week, I would be surprised if there weren't a few more pieces about it now out there circulating on the internet. But I do think it's very interesting that we aren't seeing the same kind of backlash against Hannibal for its violence that, you know, people like myself, you know, criticized the following for in its first season. And uh, some of these other series that really show this very brutal and disturbing violence. And I think that the important distinction is that there's never any sense on Hannibal that this is a thing you should enjoy. And that's, uh, you know, while the violence on the show is exciting in the the fight that we had, for example, at the start of the season premiere is absolutely exciting. That tends to be the action set pieces, the few, the few and far between action set pieces, as opposed to the death that we see on the show. It looks beautifully presented but it doesn't have that it doesn't have any sort of vicarious thrill and i think that just that tweaking of tone is what really separates it for me as a show that i can usually handle the gore and not be as uh 
as offended by it or have it not feel as extraneous and you know lurid or or attempting to be titillating and exploitative I think is a big word for that so for me that's the distinction and when you talk about the character of Hannibal yeah he's absolutely captivating to watch and at the same time just the dead eyes, the snake eyes, and you know that you have to fear him as well. And I think they do a really good job of keeping both of those at the same time. And like you said, Sean, that goes to Mass Mickelson's performance, which is, as we always say, is fantastic. Yeah, Hannibal, the character himself, seems to help with this this idea of coming to terms with some of the violence. And it's not just the artistry, but the writers somehow managed to weave a lot of the the themes of certain episodes into it as well. So when we come into the courtroom after the judge has been killed. So when we look at the display, Hannibal says not only is justice blind, uh, it's mindless and heartless as well. And there's a little bit of commentary about the law in this episode. And I know on my part, I find it very difficult to project about writers and showrunners' opinions about the things that they're discussing, social commentary, as it were. But some of this stuff is really overt such as Will's discussion with his defense attorney, um, where they're talking about the law in terms of advertising, and Will says that advertising trivializes, it manipulates, it's vulgar, and he says, boo-hoo, so is the law. Noel, do you think that this is Ryan Fuller trying to infuse Hannibal with some of that social commentary, or is this just something that we take at face value for the character's opinions? Well, I always think that you should take something at face value when it's – especially with it's a new character like it is with uh, Brower because we're getting to know him and it's giving us a perspective of how he thinks about the law. So on that on that one hand, I think that you should definitely can take it at face value as a character establishing trait for someone we've just met. But from a perspective of Fuller and company making a statement about the law itself – I'm not entirely sure. I don't know Fuller's opinions about the judicial system enough to say whether or not he has he feels that way. Certainly, I think it's wanting to set up a tone about the judicial system within the show. So I think that might be the more pressing takeaway from that is how does this show approach the judicial system and what does it think that the law offers? its characters and its narrative universe rather than thinking about it from a perspective of how Fuller thinks about the law within our world. Kate, obviously you watch a bunch of TV and so you've seen plenty of stuff that takes place in the courtroom. How do you think Hassan as an episode kind of stacks up against some of the, the courtroom dramas? Well, it's interesting. Before we started recording, actually, Noel, uh, we were speaking a little bit about The Good Wife, and uh, that's the main legal procedural that, uh, or legal series that I'm watching at the moment. And so it's fun to think about those worlds intersecting a little bit this ah. week. Um, but uh, the courtroom scenes, I think, were very interesting when we had all the different characters on the stand. Of course, that you gave, there, it was a nice catalyst for some discussion and for some, you know, some monologuing from the various characters. Uh, I, I do think that the judge's rulings on what was admissible or not, or an objection or not, felt very arbitrary. Yeah. And uh, that I would point to a as a weakness, because if they wanted to emphasize that this judge was being particularly capricious, then that didn't come through. It just felt like convenient writing. If that That's one of the few times in the entire run, actually, of Hannibal, where I felt like 
a character did something because the plot necessitated it. Totally. Yeah, so that was that was definitely a weak point. Obviously, the visual of the judge hung up was one of the more creative and uh, just I, I it was thought it was a wonderful visual as far as something grotesque and horrible can be wonderful. Um, but the actual legal issues uh more questionable i did like that they brought up very specifically the fact that if will tries to switch from an i didn't know i was doing it to an i didn't do it that they would lose that option in their in a second trial and so i, I like that there was some you know legal discussion in that way as far as far as strategy but um the actual objectioning and such was a little uh underwhelming i guess it was better than Arrow's trial for Warrior Queen, though. I will say that on Arrow. Oh, man. I can't oh, imagine. We're going to hate on Arrow. No, no, no. I, I, I like Arrow and I review it, but that trial was just ridiculous. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I, I think with this one, I had some fun with it. Absolutely. I think that the, the prosecuting attorney played by Maria Del Mar, I forget the character's name, but she was very animated and kind of over dramatic in a really endearing way. And especially when when she and Freddie Lowndes were talking, it was kind of two very, very dramatic sequences in which these two were putting on these personas and that was kind of fun to get into. And it was kind of nice just to see Freddie Lowndes back. Although I think the only note that I had as I was um as I was writing while watching was that Freddie Lowndes is a piece of shit. <laughs> No, no comment about her hat. Come on, that hat was awesome. The hat was great, yeah. But just you know, her swearing on the Bible—it it was so well shot to, to indicate that she is just a horrible um, example of, of what we all think is bad in the media. The defense attorney's, I guess, cross-examination of her was priceless as well. So there were there were fun aspects to that and. In the courtroom scenes and, the, and when they brought certain people up into the stand as well, there were some genuine great character moments. I think Jack specifically, when he stood up for Will, despite the, the general inspector's advice to kind of distance himself from it in terms of um, his his participation in what had happened to Will, was really touching. Uh, did, did either of you have a, a specific instance during those courtroom scenes that you thought worked well? I, I agree that Jack's testimony was... I think exactly what that character needed and what Jack needed to kind of push through some of his guilt and issues that he's been having about Will. And it also served a nice purpose of putting Cade more against him, which I was, I've been expecting since the start of the season. And I was surprised when Cade was more of an antagonist for Will, but now it looks like she's going to be more of an antagonist for Jack, which is a nice, which is nice. Um, but I think my favorite bit on the stand aside from Freddie's amazing outfit was Chilton being on the stand, just grandstanding so much and doing his typical Chilton thing, complete with that wonderful cane that he now can't let go of. It was just a really nice moment for Chilton to get that public spotlight that he so desperately craves, even if Will's not giving him anything to actually work with. Well, and I loved that the testimony from Chilton had a nice double level of we're watching it going, oh, you're so full of shit, yeah. Chilton. But at the same point, when you start listening to what he's saying, he's actually describing Hannibal really well. Yes. Yeah. So I like that it's both he's an idiot for thinking <laughs> that this is Will, 
but also he's not wrong either. So he's not an idiot when he's describing the who you know the actual killer. So I, I like that level. Also, uh, I, I wanted to absolutely agree with you, Noel, about was that uh, that scene with with Jack, and I really enjoyed you know both both his scenes this week but also the way that they've arced him this season they've given Lawrence Fishburne a lot more to do uh the most he's had to do in the show other than perhaps that that wonderful uh, flashback episode with Anna Chomsky that we had in season 1 but you know I like that they've really given him a lot more to do and tying back in uh Bella and her her illness is you know a great way to do that I would love if we got to see Gina Torres again uh but now that they have her character, you know, terminal and clearly apparently nearing her, her last, you know, months or, or weeks or days. I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, how, am I the only one or do you guys want her back for another final appearance? Oh, absolutely. I think that it, it situates Jack alongside the other two main characters in the series. He, he says, um, I've given my life to death. And we obviously know that that is Will's job or it was Will's job for the first season. And Hannibal, obviously, is also immersed in death. And it was that scene in particular, which comes just after the the opening credits, was so beautifully shot. And I forget the the name of the score. It was in your review and also you can you could say afterwards. But um, it it worked so well. And Lawrence Fishburne's performance was, I think, really understated. And I guess the repression of those tears as he's admitting that, you know, we might go back to the place that we met in Italy so that she could die there. It was it was brutally blunt, but also very touching. No, absolutely. It was. Um, I think Fishburne does some of his best work as Jack when he's talking about Bella. I mean, he also had that terrific time in season one with Bella's finding out about Bella's cancer. And that scene between Fishburne and Gina Torres was just heartbreaking when he finds out about the cancer from her. And it was um, Beethoven's Archduke Trio that was playing, which is actually, it's a song, it's a piece of music performed by three different instruments. And it feels kind of fitting considering the um, nature of the show when we talk about these men associated with death and we have three men dealing with these sorts of things at the core of our show. So it it felt kind of appropriate in that sense. Beethoven is great. I love Beethoven, and the Archduke Trio is, an, is a great one, a great piece by his. And I, I, we were actually talking about this a little bit as well. I do find it interesting the the composers that get selected on Hannibal, and we saw Beethoven last week as well. We get some Chopin this week. Uh, I think it's interesting that for a show as over the top, you know, because obviously we I mentioned the Good Wife earlier. The Good Wife uh, is really dived in with Bach in the past this past season as sort of their representative composer, and I I really enjoy how that Baroque instrumentation fits so well with with that show. There, um, seeing as we're in this part of the the episode i would love your guys thoughts on the kind of sound that you guys hear for the show as you know when when they have these classical pieces it tends to be romantic but um i think it's interesting that it's romantic and not baroque because this is such a baroque show oh man if we're talking about those terms in terms of capital letters i don't think i'm qualified (laughs) no i think it's um i think it's an interesting choice that they don't go Baroque. I mean, I'm not, I'm probably less qualified than you are, Kate, to talk about it. But I, I'm not, and I'm not even sure if it's a 
conscious choice on their part or they're just kind of picking appropriate music that they feel is as appropriate as it could be. But I also think that they want something that stands out against the show's soundscape that is composed by um, Brian Retzel, which is very, it's very much like a soundscape type of score as opposed to a full instrumental type of score that you would hear on other shows. So I think that they want something starkly not that. And that could be why they go for the more romantic type of sound than something a little more Baroque. Well, and it's also very lush and they're going for mm-hmm. that part of it as well. Whereas with, uh, you know, like, like a, like a Bach or some of these, uh, earlier, you're not going to get as, as thick of a sound. And so in that so, way it ties in with the scoring, which is again, tends to be very dense while also separating itself. And it, there is just this appreciation from the character of Hannibal for that. Cause obviously earlier he, in the first season, we had that wonderful opera sequence with, which I want to say that was broke. I'm not remembering which one it was off the top of my head. I want to say it was Handel. And so he clearly has an appreciation for that span of music as well. But when we see him by himself, it tends to be these uh, later romantic pieces. And so I'm sorry, I, we've gone down a rabbit hole of classical music. Uh, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> but I enjoyed this part of the show as well. I'm interested, actually, if you could just kind of explain uh, just some of the differences between the two, I guess, in terms of is there a certain emotion that a romantic piece would evoke as opposed to a Baroque one? Just because I'd be interested to, to go back and analyze, I guess, the character's feelings in those scenes. Well, it tend, you're going to have more, with romantic uh, time period, obviously the, the name says, says a lot, but you're going to have much more extremes of emotion. Beethoven in particular is very famous for his subito dynamics. So it's forte, 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 piano, 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 forte, piano, like really, really extreme contrasts. Uh, when you have a, I mean, Beethoven is also a master of harmony. Whereas a Mozart or a, a Bach, Bach is counterpoint, Mozart is more melody. Um, but but when you have a Baroque piece, you're going to have a lot more space between notes. And you'll hear that a lot on uh, on The Good Wife with their, they, with their, with their strings that they like to bring in. Um, you, you know, it's also going to be a lot of repetition and a lot of tonicism, whereas you're going to get more contrast and uh, in, in your romantic period and more complicated chord structures, shall we say, and more... Uh, dissonance that then resolves in in romantic music so you're going to get more of your suspensions you're going to get more muddled sort of uh tonalities i mean to our ear they're not muddled they're gorgeous and beautiful but at the time it was like what you're gonna include that note in there as well that's crazy uh whereas uh, the baroque would be much cleaner so i think that's you know that's at least that's my off the, you know impromptu <laughs> discussion of that uh noel any any thoughts no, um, that I think aligns pretty much with what I would say as well for that sort of thing. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. So I think that's something I'm going to be paying attention to as we go along. So thank you, Kate. One of the the things, the recurring images or symbols that I saw in this episode, and, and I kind of want to get your guys' take on it because I'm not sure what to make of it, is time. And when I wrote my review for this episode, I was kind of struggling to come up with some um, I guess, interpretation of what we get about time in this. And obviously we open the episode and during one of Will's visions and he's seeing himself execute himself, but there's the reversal of the clock there to where it goes back to the 12. Uh, and obviously last season we got that fantastic recurrent image of the clock that Will couldn't draw because of his condition. And then there's a scene in this episode, I forget at what point it takes place, but the camera starts to pull back from the ear in the, the petri dish 
and it's going clockwise, and it looks very much like that clock, only obviously instead of hands, we have the ear of the clock. So I thought that that was really interesting. And, of course, we opened the season with the the flash forward. So 12 weeks from now, um, we're on a, a countdown timer. What I guess I was trying to come up with was some stance or opinion about what Fuller's doing with the concept of time and how it functions in Hannibal. I know, Kate, last week we were both surprised to kind of realize that this has only been taking place over the course of a few months, and so time seems kind of um, either ambiguous or skewed. Do either of you have any, have any take on how time functions in Hannibal? This is a great question. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, well, the other thing I'll mention is that I did uh, I do find it interesting that the obviously we had the, the opera singer with the vocal cords, but in that same sequence in season one, we also had we went into Hannibal's ear. And so this is the second time that we, this time we're pulling out of an ear, that time we were pushing into an ear. Um, and so I, I was thinking of that parallel yes. as well. But, uh, but with, as far as, as time goes, I think uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of playing with sense of time in this show. And that's, I think that's why we were so surprised last week to discover that, that time imbalance from maybe what we were expecting, Sean. But uh, when, when we have these long scenes, even just the editing, and these, obviously this is not like long takes, it's not like these elaborate you know, single take uh, sequences, but the way the camera lingers on so many elements in this show really gives you a sense of, of space and of, you know, for Will when he's sitting alone in his cell, just how long his days must be and just how alone he is. And, you know, it, they don't cut away to something else. They don't cut back and forth quickly. This is a, a show that takes its time and is very deliberate. And I think that editing choice also affects the way that I'm viewing the time in within the show and uh, and really feeling each moment with these characters. Is that a good evasion <laughs> evasion of the question? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, for, I think I've actually always really liked how Hannibal handles time. I mean, not only like when we talk about time, Kate, you mentioned the editing. So that reminds me about how scenes just kind of end sometimes on Hannibal um, as opposed to have like a little lead out. And so sometimes characters just say a line and then cut to commercial. Or I remember one scene towards the end of season one, at the end of an episode, Hannibal says something to Will while Will's looking out a window. And Hannibal just walks off frame and that's the end of the that's the end of the episode. There's no big moment or anything. It's just a guy walks off frame, which is just very cable-y of them to do that, but it doesn't seem overtly shiny and distracting but that idea of time i think is just really interesting because i think the show actively discourages us from having a sense of time on the show consider the establishing shots on the show which are always in that time time lapse photography type of setup where we see the sky moving around the buildings we we have very little sense of when something is happening even though it's an establishing shot it feels more like a de-establishing shot where we don't know when exactly we're going into the building that we're going into. And even sometimes we'll be, have a scene, say, within the hospital, and then we'll cut back out and we'll have an establishing shot of the hospital, and then we'll go back into the hospital to show a passage of time. But how can we be sure how much time has passed? There wasn't a scene in between. It's actually really interesting how disjointed the show gets with time, its sense of time. And what that does for us is can be rather unsettling. Well, and that's interesting you say, Noel, because 
until you said it, it hadn't really occurred to me. I can't think actually of a single scene in the show. Nothing comes to mind right now, uh, though I'm sure there are ex- examples where the scene uh, is in real time, where we, we start when a character enters and we end when that character leaves. And uh, I mean, I guess maybe the end of last week where since it was such a brief interaction between Dr. DeMaurier and uh, Will, that was a very discreet set of t- uh, period of time. But for the most part, each scene just sort of cuts away while the characters are mid conversation, or at least they- it's implied that their see that scene is going to continue while we are not looking at it. Right. That's, yeah, but... I hadn't even noticed that. That's that's really that's gonna it kind of broke the glass a little bit now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, no, in a good way. In a good way. <laughs> yeah, one of the, one of the scenes in this episode that does just that, Kate, I think, is when um, when we're going through the different people who are being called up by the prosecution or the defense, and then we cut to Alana and she begins her testimony, but then we immediately see that she's doing a practice version of it. So yeah. And Noel, you brought up a couple of really good points that I definitely agree with. And the reason that I asked about time, again, is because I was kind of unsure why it was being brought to our attention. Um, but it seems to be for the reason that we shouldn't be comfortable with how time passes, like you said. And and exactly the point about how some scenes just sort of end. Each of these scenes doesn't feel like a contribution to a linear narrative, I guess. It's all very much like a collection of short stories as opposed to a novel, and oftentimes you will get that. I think when I first watched this episode, the final scene between Will Graham and Alana, when they're just holding hands and and she says, I want to save you, it it just kind of pauses there for a moment, keeps the camera on them, and just ends, and that's the end of the episode. And I thought, well, wait a second, that that seemed like a really, not an anticlimactic way to end the episode, because there doesn't need to be a climax, but it seemed like a strange tone to end on. Um, But on the second viewing and based off of this idea of a, a kind of weird take on time, it fits with Hannibal because it, it gives you something to contemplate, I guess. It's a quiet way to end that kind of has uh, an epiphany of sorts, which is how the short story as a form often functions. So that's really interesting. Well, and also the this episode feels very much to me like, as much as I did enjoy it, it feels like the calm before the storm and obviously my take on that is going to be influenced by the fact that that's basically what Brian Fuller has said that uh, you know you have a two-part premiere and then you have this the trial episode and then things apparently are going to kick into a new gear next week and so ending on that that quieter moment uh, really does make sense as far as I'm concerned we we had that gangbuster fight scene to start off the season and uh, you know this the two episode case and now this is sort of a standalone breather with you know all sorts of interesting developments in it and then We'll start back up again next week. So, you know, I think that element ties in also very nicely. No, I really like that idea of Sean's idea, your idea of how the scene gives you something to contemplate on the on the act out. Because I was thinking about like when um, Hannibal goes to visit Will in his cell after they've gotten the ear. And they're talking about how Will wants there to be another killer and this sort of thing. And Hannibal's last line for that episode is, he cares what happens to you, I think. And that's that's the end of that scene, and then we cut to a commercial. And it's just like, you get to think about that idea of Hannibal's empathy and how Hannibal cares about Will, if he cares about Will at all. And I think that idea of how the scenes encourage reflection, I think, is just a really, really good idea. And I think that's actively what the show is doing. I think maybe more than something like 
I know another show that did this when I was watching it. I don't know if it's still doing it. Was Mad Men, where scenes would just kind of end, um, mainly because Matthew Weiner doesn't like to write for commercials in his scripts. Um, so I think that's a nice, that's a really nice idea, Sean. I like that a lot. It's a good comparison to Mad Men as well. And the more that Hannibal's been on, the more that I've seen those parallels to that show, despite the two of them being in drastically different genres. But you mentioned um, if Hannibal cares about Will at all. And I wanted to tie this to the other thing that I was having trouble with, which was the, I think it was the final dream sequence that Will has in the episode in which he wakes up, his cell door is open, he sees his his Patronus stag, uh, he goes to follow it, and then Hannibal appears behind him and kind of calls him back towards the cell, inviting him back in. And I guess it just seemed like a bit of a mixed message or a contradictory moment where it really feels like Hannibal wants Will out. He wants him to be occupying that empty seat next to him, across across from him in his in his study, but then the dream version of it, and it just might be, you know, Will's projection of him, but the dream version wants him to remain in the cell. So I guess, Kate, did you make sense of that scene? Do you think that there's a contradiction there, or, or do you think that, that Hannibal leans more to one side right now? Yeah, I think it it makes sense to me, but um, but because he Hannibal wants Will to not die so he doesn't want him convicted he wants to give him time and if we're assuming we obviously we don't know but if we're assuming that he's responsible for this horrible body these two horrible bodies uh, then that casts doubt and slows down the process of will's incarceration or his trial i should say because a, a quick verdict would just get him killed and that's not what hannibal wants however it, he doesn't the, these these murders are not similar enough. They are not Hannibal's normal modus operandi. They are not similar enough to get Will off. And they are uh, also... The, the testimony that we get from Hannibal is basically exactly the thing the defense attorney was worried about getting from Alana, where he says, no, Hannibal... He says, Will's my friend, and I will always want to help him. And you should disregard much of what I'm saying because it sounds like I would be biased from it. So I think what I was seeing in that was the Patronus trying to lead Will out and Hannibal trying to keep him in. He's his friend uh, he, and he wants to be able to spend time with Will and that's only going to happen when Will's still in jail. <laughs> so, you know, I, that's that's what I'm seeing from it. I think that dream's just really... Odd for a couple of reasons. Um, first is that I can't think of another time that we've seen Hannibal in Will's dreams when Hannibal isn't depicted as the man stag. That's true, since he figured it out. Yeah, because now he's, but he sees the man stag on the stand, but he doesn't see the man stag in this dream, which I thought was interesting, and I'm not entirely sure what to make of that just yet. But I think we're kind of, I, for me, I don't think that Hannibal's responsible for these copycat kills. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think that we're that the Patronus, the Raven Stag, is trying to hint him at something within the asylum, possibly, or something within there, and is leading him there. But Hannibal, I don't know what to make of Hannibal being in there though, gesturing him back to the cell. Maybe it's supposed to be saying that you're supposed to be staying here for right now. That this is where it is, and. The Raven Stag is a distraction. I'm not, I don't know quite what to do with it since it was Hannibal himself and not the Man Stag. Because if it was the Man Stag, I'd see it as a more 
malicious representation, but with him seeing Hannibal, I don't know. I don't know quite what to pick up on it yet. And I still haven't been able to work it out. It's part of the reason why I didn't talk about it in my review at all. I wasn't quite sure what to make of that dream yet. And uh, I, I'm glad I'm not because I, I don't feel like this is Hannibal either. Because mm-hmm. I, so I'm glad I'm not the only one. I had a sense that I that it was just me. But <laughs> but I'm glad no, no, like. Quite a few of the, my commenters have said that they think it's Hannibal. Like one, like does a long spiel about how he thinks he or she thinks that Hannibal's being very sloppy by doing this, and quite a few people think it's also Demore, which I think is also really off base. Yeah. So, but yeah, so I think it's I think it's interesting that some people are seeing that, but I don't know if they're basing that on the dream or not. Sean, what did you think about the dream? Uh, the point that you make about it being. The, the human, the recognizably human version of Hannibal is good because you're right. If it was the the Manstag, as you put it, beckoning, beckoning him in, that just falls in line with all of the the manipulation that we've seen Hannibal try to exert over right. Will. And it, if it is pointing towards the idea that the answer is within the asylum, then, then that becomes really interesting and it's necessary for Will to kind of remain there to make sense of what is happening. But the the issue of Hannibal maybe being the perpetrator, I think, is an interesting one. I think the reason why I agree with the two of you is actually because of, I guess you would call it a theory or an observation that one of my friends brought up, and I felt kind of dumb for not realizing it myself, but uh, we were talking in the other two podcasts about how we didn't really get to know the muralist as well as some of the serial kill- serial killers that we got to know in the first season. And obviously the first season was completely structured around Will Graham, and it was through his perspective. He was our POV character, and so that allowed us to get into his mind as he got into the, the serial killer's minds. And what my friend had said is that now that Will's behind bars, it seems much more like the second season of Hannibal is through Hannibal's POV, and so he doesn't see these people as, you know, recognizably human and worth interrogating on a psychological level. He sees them more as objects to be physically maneuvered and manipulated to form works of art, as we see him do with the body of the muralist in in the last episode. And so by that standard, if this is through Hannibal's point of view and he's the viewpoint character, the fact that there are no scenes in which we see him commit these two murders makes me skeptical that he is the person, if you subscribe to that notion of, of viewpoint as being the thing that dictates that, which I think I do because I find that really interesting. Well, and also just that Hannibal doesn't seem like he is, or at least in the first season, he didn't seem like he was aware of the indicators that were screaming out to Will, that he was eventually able to piece together of how he views his victims. And that it would require an extra level of self-awareness to be able to manipulate his normal uh, approach to how he kills and when and why and all of this. He would have to be very self-aware in a way that I don't know that we've seen from him yet for Hannibal. So these are all good points and uh, all very interesting. I'm going to just kind of destroy and ruin this, the dream sequence a little bit for you guys, courtesy (laughs) of my sister. I was watching this episode with my sister because because uh, we we we're, we both love watching the show, so we try to watch it together when we can. And uh, uh, so the, he's walking out. There's the the stag, the raven stag, and uh, my sister turns to me uh, in a rare bit of talking over the episode. and goes, hey, 
Hey, Will. Will, what what day is it? <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot of hump day uh, jokes in our house. So, oh, it, you've just ruined it. Yeah, yeah. I just thought I would share. So if anyone out there who enjoys that ad, you now have a new destroyed dream sequence to enjoy. It won't be long Ugh. before we see uh, a dark version of a camel on the show, I'm sure. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've, talked, uh, we've talked a little bit about Alana Bloom. I just want to address uh, the question that she kind of struggles with as she's preparing her testimony, and that's about the romantic feelings towards Will. And, um, you know, she kind of repeats what she had said about just having the professional curiosity that there's no romantic inclination there. I mean, obviously, she's repressing some part of that, and we saw a genuine human connection between the two of them last season. But do you think because she's pretty convinced that Will did commit these crimes, although on the the unconscious level, do you think that that's actually completely changed her feelings towards him so that it really is just professional curiosity now? Oh, no, um, clearly not. No, no, it's not. Um, I think it's one of those situations where she, she even says that she wants to save Will. And she's doing the best that she can to do that. And if she needs to basically lie about how she feels about Will to save him, then that's what she's going to do. I think it's it's always been for Alana about protecting herself, as she explained to Will um, back in season one, was that he's unstable and that he is not the best option for her given his current mental state or even his past his past mental state and maybe his current mental state, depending on how she kind of feels about him. I mean, their handholding scene at the end just gave me all the warm fuzzies. And I was, I was just really happy when that happened. Um, but I also just acknowledge the fact that they have a very long way to go. I think before they can move and progress in any romantic sense, especially with this whole murder app hanging over him. <laughs> Yeah, the warm fuzzies are a lot uh, warmer and fuzzier when you're watching from Will's point of view, uh, yeah. which I think we mostly are, and because we know he's innocent. And when you shift your perspective and try to watch it from, okay, now imagine she is holding Charles Charles Manson's hand and saying she wants to save him, or Hannibal's hand and saying she wants, you know, like you know, you know, fictional or non-fictional kind of character. That makes it a lot less warm and fuzzy, and it makes her a very uh, different kind of person. So I think the the struggle we've seen for both her and Jack to fit both of the will that they know and the will they think the crimes they think Will did into the same picture has uh, been, a, it's, I think it's been a real struggle for the two of them. And I look forward to seeing, assuming, you know, if we're actually able to get enough of the show that we get to see this, what happens with Hannibal when, when he's revealed, because they, they can, they can manage to lie to themselves about trying to, to make these the same person in season two. I don't know if they can do the same thing again in, you know, when Hannibal gets revealed. Absolutely, yeah. And just touching again on Alana, uh, Kate, I think you mentioned last week that she seems like the person who will be the last one to finally come to terms and accept what Will is saying as the truth. And I find that really interesting. And I'm really just compelled by that relationship just because there's 
there's not much optimism in Hannibal as a series. <laughs> so it's nice to have some some shining light here and there. I think we're going to move on to what will probably now be a recurring segment of the podcast where we just kind of look at little details that were either interesting um, or entertaining in some way because obviously more than most shows the attention to detail and this is unbelievable. And there was a lot of laugh out loud dark humor in this, I think. There were a lot of great images. Um, before I turn it over to, to Noel, I think the one I just want to mention is in that scene where both Hannibal and Will are getting dressed in the beginning, just the cut from Hannibal putting on his cufflinks to Will getting handcuffed, I thought was just a fantastic cut. And the, the cuffing there, the, the repetition of that, I thought was a genius work. But, but Noel, I know you pinpointed some humorous things that happened in the episode in your review, if you want to talk about those. Sure, no. Um, it's interesting that, I mean, I didn't quite see it in the first two episodes, but I think we're seeing it more here. Um, Fuller mentioned, I think in, I want to say it was the Nerdist podcast that he did, that he was looking to introduce more humor into the show, which is, I think, something the audience needs. But I also just am curious as to how they intend to do that. And I think that you're right, the cufflinks handcuffs is a nice little visual pun and play that they did. But I mean, things like the Will's lawyer saying, I think I got your mail, when he opens up the envelope in the ear and the blood flakes fall out, it's just, it's really funny in a way that really shouldn't be funny at all. I mean, it felt, feels very, felt very much like something out of David E. Kelly almost where I was expecting some sort of upbeat theme song to kick in just as he said that. And instead we just went to another scene. Um, but then both Jimmy and Brian talking about how they should have gotten stool samples from Will <laughs> was just, I, I'm not big on fecal humor, but that actually made me laugh a lot because they felt, they were just like, yes, that's what we should have done. And it's just really funny that in their world, this is something that they should have done. <laughs> well, and also I love that if they had, they could have analyzed it and seen that he ad hadn't actually eaten anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I love that for them. It's just like this missed opportunity of their job and the kind of people they are. And for us, we're like, ah, oh, it would have helped vindicate. You know, it's such a just a hilarious detail and just when you talk about brian i mean aaron abrams his delivery of you've got to be kidding me yeah he's really funny in this episode he was the one who went in for the fist bump right yes and jack was... just looked at him and went <laughs> no because <laughs> i mean that i'd love that they represent that you have this group of characters who are you know we're, we want to see them trying to help will but it doesn't make any sense because there's this mountain of evidence and so to have at least one of them just straight up say you guys are crazy this is ridiculous obviously he did it in a way that we can still like him i think was was a good move uh and so when you talk about these little details we have talked about it a little bit uh on twitter but uh that suit from hannibal with the red squares because I, I, I want to say pinstripe but it's not pinstripe i don't know what that kind of suit is called but it i just was staring at it and it's just confirmed for me that i really if the, if this can get out there into the ether and somehow to them tom lorenzo need to do write-ups of this show i would love if they would do write-ups of this show 
that was such a weird outfit outfit for him to wear as well. Yeah, that that really stood out in a series in which he's had a bunch of outfits that have really stood out, especially the one that we got last week, just the the plastic suit that he wears to cover himself as he's doing his stuff. Um, yeah, I think another detail that really got me was and very minor and probably not meaningful or even intentional in any way, but as soon as the the title finishes and we go to you know they start listing the actors names scott thompson and aaron abrams names line up perfectly with the two glasses of whiskey that uh that hannah was pouring for for him and jack and that was just i guess um the symmetry of that was just kind of visually striking and that stood out to me were there any other details either you know visual sound we haven't even talked about um how gruesome it was when will is doing his projection thing and he's cutting off the ear of the corpse and giving it the glasgow smile as well yeah, that was really gruesome. I think part of that gruesomeness of him reenacting the crime scene was one of those instances that kind of distracted people from what he was saying a little bit. Because he has that line where he says, when he's talking about Sykes, he says, he will die believing we were friends. It is his last thought. And I think that's one of those things where people kind of were missing that line as Will's never really been wrong before, so that line kind of indicates to me that it's obviously not Hannibal that's doing this, because Hannibal probably didn't know Sykes. Yeah, and it's also a, a nice parallel, obviously, to Hannibal and Will's relationship, right. or even just uh, Hannibal and Jack, which we already know what's headed our way with that relationship. So yeah, yeah it's definitely, definitely. All right, well, were there any other questions that either of you wanted to bring up, any other things that you wanted to comment in relation to this episode? Am I the only one a little concerned because I've really enjoyed what they've given Beverly to oh, do this Hetian Park. Am I the only one who's worried that Will's setting her up to be gruesomely murdered by the end of the season? You think she's going to make it to the end of the season? I'm worried about <laughs> her making it through the next three episodes. <laughs> well, because she's got to make enough, she's got to be around long enough to get the ball rolling on Will is innocent. No, I, 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 I'm just, I'm worried about the, how they're cutting the promos for mm -hmm. her because I'm really, really worried about how they're cutting the promos and featuring her in them. I'm worried about Beverly, <laughs> and I don't want Beverly to go away because I really love Beverly. I like how Park is playing Beverly right now. How she wants to go to Will because she needs Will's help, but she's also deathly afraid of Will because she doesn't trust him, and she's. She's worried that Will consciously did these things. And I think it's it's a sort of moral clarity that's kind of missing from both how Jack and Alana are perceiving him right now. Because both of them are kind of muddled a little bit. And she's very much empirical in this sense. And I think that's really nice. But it also gives Will that leeway to convince her otherwise. Yeah, I, th I think up until recently, she had been kind of the weak link for me in the series. But now that she's really had strong involvement with Will and is the one that he's going to, I'm much more invested in her character and worried as well, of course, because any any steps that Will takes towards exposing Hannibal obviously puts anybody who's helping him in danger. And so I, I kind of would be surprised if, if she's around much longer. Well, the other thing for me watching this is there are two women on the show, <laughs> and the story availability for Alana is much more constricted based on her relationship with Will. And, and, and Jack. 
and Jack, yeah. So she can only have so much of a sphere of storytelling, in, you know, especially when she's convinced that Will's guilty. Uh, and so if they kill off Beverly, it's just another, it makes it just another one of those shows that has way not enough women. Yeah. Especially, and then also with Demoria uh, taking off at the end of last week as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure we all agree that we, we hope she sticks around longer, but the, the optimism is waning a little bit. So that's unfortunate. But we'll probably conclude the discussion here at this point. Uh, Kate and I will be back next week to talk about episode four. Taki Owase. I want to again thank Noel Kirkpatrick for coming in and talking with us. Noel, where can the listeners find your your work? Um, I'm at TV.com. And I cover, in addition to Hannibal each week, I also do Arrow and uh, The Good Wife. And I occasionally do Elementary as well when the episode calls for it. And I'm at Twitter at Noel, N-O-E-L, and then R-K. And I'm on their way too much. Fantastic. And I think our our co-host as well is also on there quite a bit. And Kate, where can our listeners find you? Well, on Twitter, I'm at the Televerse, and that's also the the Twitter for the Sound Insight TV podcast that I co-host with Simon Howell. Goes uh, going out every Tuesday, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and uh, yeah, I'm I, I I lurk. I tend towards lurking. So uh, if I'm not tweeting a bunch at me and about whatever you want to talk about TV, and I will respond. So yeah, I being on Twitter too much is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> lurking, compiling all the evidence. Absolutely, I think that's what I do too. Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter at my name, at Sean Coletti. My Hannibal reviews appear on tvovermind.com, and I write for Sound on Sight as well. And my personal blog is thereisnothingon.com for just kind of general TV coverage. But again, thank you listeners for tuning in. This has been another episode of This Is Our Design. Hey!